Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you are. Thank you so much for tuning in to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. My podcast and I are the proud members of the syndicated C-Suite Network. It is the largest network dedicated to helping leaders be better leaders, getting from where they are today and where they want to be in the future and helping them close the gap so that they can be more successful, their organizations can be more successful, and that they can fulfill their purpose in terms of their brand promise to their customers, their employees, and other stakeholders. Today, my guest is Eric Tarigian, and Eric is the Vice President for Global HR and Chief Human Resources Organization out of Detroit, Michigan. Eric and I have some of the most rich and wonderful conversations about how HR is today and the future of HR. Too often, he and I both have had conversations where executives struggle with how do they actually apply HR principles, the behavior of humans in the workplace in such a way that they create high performance, inclusive work organizations. It's a tough challenge, and most executives, as you'll find, have not been trained to be able to meet that challenge, but yet in their heart, they want to do the right thing. So sit back and listen to this private conversation that just went public with me and Eric about the state of HR and where is it going. Oh, hint, this is part one. This conversation was over two hours, and this is one segment. Next week, there will be another one. So stay tuned. Eric, what's up? You're, I loved your intro. And I've been thinking about something you said to me earlier. And we love to say, and a lot of us senior HR leaders love to say, hey, you know, where's my seat at the table? And how do I get a seat at the table? And, you know, it's easy for those of us who are there to say, just come on in and sit down. That's your seat at the table. Absolutely. You just introduce yourself to the business. But how do we now teach this next generation and teach the next layer how to make that penetration and how do you make that jump and how do you get in there and, and be seen as credible and come, come with your value. And it's really just about getting engaged and being a business partner. And you know, I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't, who's not happy to explain to you what they do. And when you engage them and they ask them, what do they do? What are your challenges? What's in front of you? What frustrates you? What's broken? What are you trying to deliver? And then you start to develop people's strategies to support that, you're at that table. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's that, that piece you're talking about in terms of listening, because engaging somebody and asking them questions is really about being a person who listens well and also can feel the connection, feel the pride in someone when they're talking about what they're doing. But the other is, is that I think you know, too often we, everyone, regardless of whether you're in HR or not, we come with this feeling or this sense that we have to know it already. We have to know the answer to the question before the person has a chance to ask the question. And that is the essence of the wrong approach. Because if you think you have to have the answer before you even get curious about the question, curious about the other person, then you're already stepping off on the wrong foot. Yeah, and we're afraid to ask a question that'll make us look silly, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, and I'm not afraid of that, so I'll just put it out there right now. (laughs) I've never been afraid of that, and I probably asked questions that have made me look silly. (sighs) But I worked for a regional vice president, and it was sales, and it was consumer product goods, and they were talking about things like store door value and total value and 
percent of cart and all these terms. I didn't know what they were. And I would ask him and I'd be like, hey, Sam, what does store door value really mean? And why, why are we even worried about it? And one day when we were actually had some windshield time and we were driving to a store, he said, you know, you ask questions that a lot of us assume we already know the answer to, but sometimes it's stopping to explain it to you forces the rest of that leadership team to level set their understanding of it. And it's kind of like, you know, out of the mouth of babes. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's not only that, I, I think that's a really, really good, important question or, or response because oftentimes people just fall into a culture and start talking the language and inferring what that means. Even people in the function, because every company's got their own uh, nomenclature. Oh, for sure. How about just now? Uh, people started talking about things like furlough and layoff, and who understood the difference between a layoff and a furlough? Right. Well, we all understand it now. Right, right, right. And, and what happens is oftentimes I can say the word, I can say the concept, but I, until you make me have to break it down in a different way, I don't really understand it. Exactly. Make me teach it. Yes. You want me to learn it? Make me teach it. Yes. Yes. My daughter, I do electronics as a hobby and my daughter who's five has really gotten excited about it. And she comes down to my hobby room in my workbench and she'll sit next to me and she started picking up stuff and started putting stuff together and she'll do something and I'll, I'll make her explain to me, why'd you do that that way? And then the more she has to explain it, the more I can see that learning taking root. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I will frequently say, there are those who have acquired the knowledge and there are those who can apply the knowledge. And oftentimes we don't know the difference between the two because we never ask those questions. So um, what I'd really like to know is in your bio, you happen to mention that you love a challenge, which not many HR people like challenges. Yeah. Um, when, you look, when you look at my background, you can see a lot of times I've taken the roles that nobody else wanted. Yeah. And the roles that were hard and difficult, because I always thought in those roles was going to be the greatest learnings. And, you know, I went and took on a closure. So I actually took a role with a company that I knew about 18 months later would be gone. Yeah. And I went in and closed a plant and it was very, very difficult. And they were very, very difficult days. And during that same 18 months, I had peers who were doing, you know, routine roles and just really repeating experiences they had previously gotten. But I've always had this strategy and I've always had this mindset. And my dad told me one time when I was very young, he said, you can go out there and you can get 30 years of experience or you can get one year of experience 30 times. It's up to you. Mm -hmm. You're going to make those choices that determine that. Yeah. And it's always stuck with me. You and I both, when we've had these conversations offline, we have had an opportunity because we bounced across sectors, industry, sectors, regions, global, the works. And so it's given us a perspective of being able to see more than just what's in front of us. We've had to really understand who the other person is, what their cultural sensitivities are, what does it look like for them. Yeah, and I think we we do ourselves a disservice in HR, and it's the old saying, right, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. But HR, we're very good at coaching people on 
excellence and how to get involved and being a partner, but we don't do it well ourselves. And mm. HR as a function, and for some reason, it, and it really frustrates me, you'll hear HR people say things like, I want a seat at the table, and how do I get my seat at the table? You don't ever hear a finance person saying that. Well, right. you know what, HR, how do you do it? You go, and you sit down at the table, and you get involved, get yeah. engaged, become yeah. part of the business. But so it's, often... It's that other piece, you know, just to take it another step, because I think we hear that from really talented, or people who have a seat at the table will always say, just come and sit at the table. But I think for those people who sit on the, on the sidelines going, please invite me, please invite me, pick me, pick me, pick me. I think we need to peel that back there, right? a little bit because it's not just showing up at the table, but you said something really important of, I've always had this knack of understanding business. Well, and that's the core concept that tends to get lost in our function. And I don't want mm-hmm. you know to be too function-centric here, but our function tends to forget that at the end of the day, we're business professionals whose expertise is people. Mm-hmm. Much like a CFO or a finance person or an accounting payroll specialist, they're business professionals whose expertise is finance or accounting or supply chain or engineering. But the business hired people to lead it and to run it and to take care of it. They didn't say, I want you to come take care of the people. I want you to come take care of the business. Now, when we sit down together to discuss and review things as a team, the expectation is you'll look at the problem from a people-centric lens. But you're still in there as a business professional. And that's what's lost. And I hear again and again and again people say, well, that was just a business meeting. Precisely. So why weren't you there? Right. 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 And and even in the in the contribution, I think if you have a lens that that is about people, then you should be able to take the data that is drawn in the system or have systems data. And just like finance, like you were just saying, finance takes the information in the finance systems and then says, based on the information that we have in front of us, this is where we're doing really well. This is where we're not. Here are the things that the areas that are doing well are different than the areas that are not doing well. And that's not what HR comes to the table with. Not not traditionally. Traditionally, HR is there as the rule. I'll give you a great example. I joined a team, and I told the vice president of purchasing, I said, hey, Greg, I'm going to come to your staff meeting. And his eyes glare over, and he looked at me and goes, why? Why is the head of HR coming to my staff meetings? Because I want to know what's going on in the business, and I'd love to be part of it, and I want to hear what's happening, and I want to know what's going on, how the pieces fit together. Okay, but I'm not really sure. You know, people might be scared. I said, well, then there's something wrong, but let's do it. So we're going through these meetings. Now, in the background, I knew that this particular leader, one of the knocks against him from the board was he doesn't have any female leadership above director level. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to know what was wrong, what's going on. So I'm going through a few meetings with him, and I'm listening to what's happening. And I look at his succession plan and his org charts, and he's got a lot of female managers, mm-hmm. no directors. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. He has one who is tagged as high potential, and when I drill down, it says needs program management, complex program management for next level. Okay, so over a series of a few meetings, I'm listening to him assign projects, and he never assigns a project to her. 
So I pulled him aside and said, hey, let's go take a walk. We walked down the street to Starbucks, and while we were walking, I just wanted it to be a disarmed conversation. Right. I said, hey, I noticed that Mary, and I can't remember her name, but Mary needs to get a project to get to the next level, to get to that director level, needs to show the skill. Yeah, we just never, she never develops it, never shows it. Every time a director position opens, she's not ready for it. I said, well, you've got all these projects and you're assigning them to everybody. How come you never give one of those to her? Well, what she's working on is critical and I've got to have her focused on this because she's going to get all this indirect purchasing done and I, I can't afford to peel her off. I said, well, why don't you take her and assign her to one of these key projects and take the person you were going to assign and give them the indirect show you she's got the skills or she doesn't. If you say someone's three to five years from being ready, but over the next three to five years, you don't take any steps to get them ready, three to five years from now, they're still three to five years from being ready. He's like, oh, is it that easy? Can I do that? I said, well, not only can you, you need to. So what we've learned there was he didn't have biases, but he was so focused on the individual problem that he wasn't looking at the longer term problem. Right. But the power of it being is as a HR professional business partner, I can get in there and see these things that he's missing. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, we've got one or two females promoted, get them into leadership ranks, get them aligned for next level jobs. Now, all this other noise can settle away and go mm -hmm. away. And that's people planning. That's succession planning. That's being a good HR. Yeah. And seeing what, how do we make these plans, these strategies, what does it take to implement them? And that's the connection. It's not just having these, you know, discussions, these nine box successions, these, you know, we're going to hire the right people, et cetera. It's, it's more than just the hiring of them. It's really focusing on coaching leaders who I honestly think your example is probably right. In the moment, they're not connecting that dot. Correct. They're not seeing the map. We, you know, in your opinion and, and what you've been doing, how do you assess an organization's culture? So there is no F of X equals culture, right? So there is no formula that's going to specify what your culture is. Your culture is actually, it's the mixture of all of the inputs that you have as an organization. Mm -hmm. All the things you do contribute to who you want to be. Right. I think it's values and I go to a value-based system. And I guess, let me just use an example because, you know, I love examples and I love to tell my stories. I was supporting the CEO and we would, I sat down and we went through and he had four core deliverables. So the executive team, they all worked on this. They had four things that they said, if we do these things and we do these things well, we'll be successful. Okay. They, they had a vision, they had a vision for where they wanted to be. Okay. And here are the four planks to get there. And we're going to go and be successful. Great. So I went out about the people and I was talking to people and just working through manufacturing plants and talking to as many people as I can because I'm trying to assess the organization. I start having discussions about these four items and, you know, what, what do you think of them? Do you think they're right? Do you think they're on track? Do you think we're working on them? What do you think our progress is towards them? And he calls me up in a panic and he says, I need you to stop talking to people about the four priorities. I said, whoa, okay, Greg. I said, you're going to have to share. Give me some more. What are you thinking? What's on your mind? Well, you know, we don't really share them with people and people don't understand them. And all you're going to do is confuse everybody. We just want people to work on their assignments and not worry about the broader goals of the organization. Wow. I said, Greg, if one of their, 
if they can't track what they're doing back to one of those four things, they arguably shouldn't even be doing it. Yeah. And I said, this is the core to who you are as an organization. And when you step back and look at that organization, the organization is very disjointed. Right. They don't have they don't have a purpose. They don't have a direction. They don't have a flow. Right. And they're and actually they're gone now because they ended up filing bankruptcy. And then I had to come back in and clean it up and dissolve the business and close it down. And it's a shame because it didn't have to happen. And it was a lack of, you can't really say it was a lack of vision from leadership, but it was a lack of alignment to the vision. Yes. And I have a very simple formula. CEO, you set a vision. This is who we're going to be. And these are the values that we have as an organization. And this is where we're going. That leadership team, you develop the tactics. What are the what are the broad tactics that we're going to use to deliver that vision? Those are our strategies. And then everybody gets objectives that are based on those strategies. And if those objectives deliver the strategies, the strategies will deliver the vision and we will move forward in the right direction as an organization. It's not that hard. Now, I am a clerk in sector B. I have this assignment to do. It can be the most mind-numbing assignment in the world. And if I understand how it delivers the ultimate vision for the company, I'm going to do it with a level of excellence like you've never seen before. People talk about Chick-fil-A. Why is Chick-fil-A such a great place to go visit? Well, it's not because they brainwash their employees or it's not because they put them through some training that you can pick up and duplicate somewhere else. It's because they hire people who have an aligned set of values to what the organization has. They have a very clear vision for who they want to be, and they communicate that vision to everybody. Yeah, whether you, whether you agree with it or not, everybody who works for them understands what the vision is and have voluntarily said, I'm, a, I'm playing this game. Exactly, and that's fair. And if you know what, if you don't want to, then go work at another chicken restaurant. I mean, I don't want to sound harsh, right? But this is the values of the organization. This is what the organization believes in. This is the direction we're going to go. And, and, and I think it's the other way, you know, because you're painting the values point of view of it. But there's some people who just understand, particularly if they live in small town America, and I've lived in small towns, work is an enabler. It is not the all, be all end all. I come, I do a job, I do it to the best of my ability, but my real life is back at the ranch, at the, at my home, in my community. I'm a leader in my community. I'm a leader in my church. I'm a leader in my family, et cetera, et cetera. I think they get that with a level of clarity that everyone else deserves. And here, I just hung up a conversation with somebody on this. And I said, listen, two things. First of all, we need to stop talking about work-life balance. Yeah. Work-life balance is a meaningless concept. What we need to start thinking about is, Life work integration. Yes. How does your job integrate into your life? Right. You are part of a family group. You're part of a work group. You're part of a community group. All of these things fit together. The integration is what's going to matter. I said, you know, we have a lot of people like many organizations who are furloughed and unfortunately some who may not return mm -hmm. and they're struggling and it's a very scary time right now. And for the most part, no one has ever been taught how to deal with this loss of a job or not having a job. Yes. And so many people have their sense of self wrapped up in their job. Right. And then they're in the situation now without it. 
and they don't even know who they are. Right. And it's such a shame. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and here, and this is where, you know, going back to the earlier conversation, it's all in my opinion, you know, this and 10 cents won't buy you any Starbucks coffee. <laughs> it is the fact that we, you know, we still have so much of, of what we say from a management point of view is park your life at the door when you come in that you that the only part that we want 110% of you is your ability to focus and do this job to the best of your ability, which I don't think executives when they make these grandiose statements really understand that for the average person, what you basically said is, you want me to work as hard as I work for a little bit of money, you get more money, and I don't get anything else out of it except heartache and a divorce, or no marriage, or kids who don't know who I am, and you're wanting me to sacrifice my other life, because we live in flatter organizations. And I'm not saying that the structure is not the right structure. We're in a competitive global env environment, and we need to be as flat and as productive as possible. But this plug and play, everybody works 70 hours. There is no, you are what the job is, and if you're not doing it to that level, you know, and back to what is the future of HR, when we, you know, if you go to any company in, in this country and probably the world, HR looks like the same thing. I mean, we got all, all the same policies and maybe some unique things, unique ways in which we administer the policy based on local standards, local laws, et cetera. But there's always going to be compensation. There's always going to be hiring. There's always going to be performance management of some sort um, out of it. There's always going to be conversations around employee engagement. There's going to be benefits. There's going to be comp, comp, workers' comp, safety, those kinds of things. There, that's, just, that's just part of the foundation of managing people. But it isn't the foundation that creates the culture. Structuring jobs for people to be successful. There was a time when, you know, I grew up and we really had to do job analysis, not from the task perspective, but from a strategic point of view. And we wanted our executives to, be, to have significant think time and discussion time so that they could play what-if scenarios to understand how to respond to rapid changes in the marketplace and rapid changes based on technology. We don't do that anymore. It's well, all about next quarter. How are we going to make And I fear that that's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Because we're shortening those performance horizons, which needs to happen. I mean, we really do need to shorten those performance horizons and start aligning people because it's agility is going to really matter and how fast we can react to stuff is going to really matter. But, but at the same time, we got to know that we're putting Okay, but isn't it a balance? I mean, because if, if someone isn't thinking about it, and, and I get that, you know, if you're in the customer facing or the closer you are to customer facing, customer product production, then your, your idea is what do we do for the next week, four weeks, you know, 12 weeks, and that's kind of your horizon. But if somebody is not looking and saying, you know what, two years from now, we're going to have to add robotic technology. Yeah. Because that's actually going to reduce it. Or we need to be worrying about the fact that we don't have enough an electrical grid that is stable because there is climate change and or the grid, we have not placed infrastructure in our country. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to have um, alternative energy so that we have a company two years, four years, five years from now. If we're not, if somebody's not asking those questions and saying, we need to figure out what's the best thing for us and how do we keep what we're doing now, but we have to have a way to migrate to where we need to be. And we have to bring employees on with us. 
than the life cycle of companies, which has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter over the last 50 years. Yeah, I look at it from the standpoint that I remember when I started, you know, work meant you were there at 7 a.m. Uh-huh. You went and had breakfast with the senior leader. You had your oatmeal. You went back to your desk. You worked at your desk quietly. You didn't bother anybody. You didn't get up and walk around. You all had lunch together at 1130 in the cafeteria. And you all went back to your desk and you worked until 6 p.m. And you were considered a good worker. And you reported to this brick building and you had your cubicle or your office if you were really doing well. And that's what work meant. Mm-hmm. That's not our world now. And I just had this conversation with my team. I said, listen, I don't care when, where, or what time you do your work. What I care about is each of you is a professional. Each of you has deliverables. Each of you knows what needs to be done and, it, and knows how things tie into everything else. There are some projects that are time bound. There are some where there's a, a daisy chain of responsibilities. So you have to do certain things at certain times. Fine. If that means that you need to go and sit with your children and you want to go do something for a few hours in the day and come back at night, I don't necessarily care. And you don't even need to explain it to me because work, I think, now has to look differently. If we cling to this concept that work means this physical location for eight hours a day, I don't think that this world will be successful. Right. There's some jobs that, you know, restaurant, retail, People want to be tied to it. Frontline supervisor, you need to be there. Those are time bound. There's a physical value to your presence. Yeah. My payroll team need to be there. But I also think, well, but I, and I also think that we have to start thinking about staffing those roles differently than just what the production, sales production and peak customer times look like. And honestly, rewarding them. if, If COVID hasn't taught us anything, that's one of the things we're going to have to figure out how to deal with. Yeah, we have to reward people differently too. Yeah. So I'm going to break this conversation right here. Eric and I continued to talk for another 90 minutes, and the conversation was quite rich in terms of how does the new way HR 2020 really get changed so that we're much more responsive to the needs of a business that is constantly changing as the world changes. So this is part one. I invite you to listen to part two, which will be out in a few days. And in the meantime, if you've got questions, please, you know what to do. Leave them in the chat box or send me a private message on LinkedIn. If you like it, share it. If you don't, share it anyway, because it will always encourage a conversation that is different than where you're sitting right now. You've been with Denise Cooper and Eric Terigian talking about the future of HR and closing the gap, getting you from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. I want to thank my um, host on C-Suite Network for hosting me and my podcast and all my guests, sharing it so that everyone can learn something. Also, the music is by Ivan G. Hall, who's generously given me an opportunity to highlight him. With that, it's a wrap. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.